Welcome, listeners, to the BHL podcast series. I'm your host, Scott Heidner, and it is my pleasure today to be hosting a podcast at the Eisenhower Presidential Library and Museum and Boyhood Home in Abilene, Kansas. My guests today are Don Hammett, the director of the museum, and Joy Murphy, the learning and engagement director. Uh, Thank you guys so much for making time to be with us today. Thanks for being here. Delighted. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So have to tell listeners, uh, half explanatory, half uh, humble brag, they were kind enough to take me on a walkthrough of the museum before we got started. I had been here before, but it had been a long time. And as they were quick to tell me, uh, if you've been here, but it's been a while, then you haven't been here. It's time to come back. And it is so true. What a killer, killer facility. Uh, and what a great story from him, both as an individual and in terms of what you all are doing with his uh, protecting the memories and the legacies and the education that you've produced from all of that. So with that, uh, let's get started with um, Don. I'd like to start with you. Let's talk about Ike, the person, uh, the background on him, the background on this site, uh, how it really grew up around his boyhood home. Uh, Starting with him, I mean, let me ask you this, Abilene. Born here, came here as a youth, uh, the house here. How did it all get started? Sure. So the Eisenhower family um, um, came to Kansas uh, two generations before Ike was born. Uh, They settled here in Dickinson County. Um, There was an economic downturn, so his father had to get a job somewhere else. His father got a job in Denison, Texas. So Dwight was born in Denison. Dwight's the only of the seven boys that was born outside of Dickinson County, Kansas. Um, uh, For reasons due to business, the dad was able to come back to Kansas. They settled here in Abilene. The family lived in Hope and, you know, in this this area. Uh, But they moved back to Abilene, and the rest of the boys were born here. So they... Despite Ike's not being born in Kansas, they're really very Ca- a very Kansas family. Yeah. Um, so they had uh, the, this home that's on our property, on the property of the library. Uh, they moved here when Ike was a young boy, and uh, they added on to it. It wasn't quite—it's a small house, but it wasn't quite that large when Ike lived there. Um, and so the family lived here. It was a little neighborhood. They had about two and a half acres. Um, so they had a, a little livestock, some acreage for their family, and um, they were not a wealthy family. And the boys would um, sell vegetables in town or, and tamales in town uh, for money to go play to buy uh, baseball equipment. They're very sports-minded. So you, you said they were not a wealthy family. One of the things that was interesting as we toured and talked earlier uh the the Eisenhower family, not just Ike, but his siblings, which I know we'll talk about at least just a little bit here coming up, very successful. And if one didn't know better and just looked at their life as capsules, you would almost assume they came from a wealthy family because there was a lot of education. Uh, but you were telling me earlier that often in the Eisenhower family, one of the jobs of the older brothers would be to go work so they could pay for the college of the younger brother because there just wasn't any money to do it any other way. So that's true. Both of the parents went to college. The parents met at college, which is sort of odd for the time period. So they believed heavily in education. So when the boys were finished um, high school, they would take turns um, paying for each other's college. 
And whoever got uh, Dwight ended up getting the cheap end of the stick because? He, well, he found out that the military academies were free. Yeah. And he applied to to go to the military academies. He really wanted to go to Annapolis. He wanted to go to the Naval Academy. Um, but at the time, he would have been too old upon graduation. So then he turned to the Army, uh, to West Point. And I, I often think about what would have happened if he had graduated from Annapolis rather than uh, from West Point. I wonder if the Navy thinks about that from time to time, too. I, I should ask someone. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's probably not something they put on the front of their recruiting brochures. Right. I could, could have had Dwight Eisenhower, <laughs> but he was a year too old. Yep. Whoops. Uh, well, his career then in the military, starting with West Point, uh, one of the things that's captured in the museum, and I know we're going to talk more about the exhibits and the timeline here soon, but almost a, just a who's who of where he went and who he worked with. Uh, I'm sure everybody's or most everybody's seen Forrest Gump. That's what I was thinking of as we <laughs> went through. Just everywhere he turned, he bumped into somebody incredibly impactful and, and famous. You know, his time Pershing MacArthur. Walk us through his uh, pre-World War II military experiences. So he had a lot of um, um, experiences and, and, and opportunities to grow his skill set. One of his main mentors was General Fox Connor, and he and General Fox Connor would um, read military books, strategy books, have sort of like book club conversations about them, and he considered his time with Fox Connor a, um, a graduate school on uh, military history. Uh, so he had these opportunities to learn all of these different things, which, which we believe at the library allowed him to grow into this particular man that we needed during World War II. And that's part of, you guys, fill this in for me here. Joy, this is maybe a question for you. I don't want to use the wrong term of art. You have a theme right now of the continuing education, the exhibits, and say it again. It is It is the making of a leader. The making of a leader. And you guys, the timeline starts with how all of this military experience helped shape that into him. Uh, just the fact that he served with both MacArthur and Pershing is is mind-blowing in and of itself. I mean, two of the most important military minds of that time period. That is true. And um, some of his other opportunities, you know, he was um, he was stationed in the Philippines, and he helped the president of the Philippines create a military for the Philippines. So his opportunities to to create this 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 army for you know I mean that's what it was he created the army um, I, I just feel like he was the right in the right places at the right times and had the right experiences yeah so that's something that's really cool that I will say to listeners if you come here to see the museum which I hope all of you will and all of you should you will never regret it uh, one of the things that is very evident if you're looking for the clues through the first part of the museum is, these experiences made him uniquely equipped for the challenges that, that lies ahead, which is pretty cool. Speaking of those, one more, and then we can move on uh, maybe to his, his military service in World War II, unless there's anything else we missed that you want to cover. But something that, from a personal level, I think is underappreciated about Ike is you know the interstate highway system, which we'll get to later, but that was really founded on his interwar between World War One, and World War II experience in the Army and his uh, the study that he led of transportation links across America. Right. So he was a part of the Transcontinental, 
Transcontinental Motor Convoy in 1918. And the military um, was really trying to figure out how, if we need to mobilize and, and, and protect the West Coast, how do we do that? Uh, so they had um, a convoy, and they drove it across the United States, the continental United States, and it was, in my words, a mess. Um, some of the roads were non-existent. Some of the bridges were non-existent. Um, so the military learned an awful lot about what it is they would need um, um, in order to to protect different areas within the United States. Um, Ike was part of that, and uh, it, through that he learned, of course, mobilization and, and logistics. Um, but he was also able to learn how to, not how to, but he was with the troops who were doing that. So his interconnectedness with all of the people who were in the process of learning this, um, I believe helped him with his leadership in, a, in an interpersonal aspect as well. Yeah, certainly helped him individually in the role he was going to grow into, but in my opinion had an enormous impact on the country later when that served as the foundation of his work with the interstate highway system. Absolutely, and then when he went to Europe and the, the Germans had already started the Audubon, so it was yeah. both of those things, this 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 uh, a trial to get to the West Coast and then seeing the Audubon in Germany and going, this is absolutely what we need in the United States. A uh, couple other notes. I said I would move on to his time as president, but I want to tell listeners about a couple things that I thought was pretty cool in the exhibits. Uh, there is a, a, a table that is meant to represent a family dinner table early in the exhibits that has a place setting for he and his parents and each of his siblings. And it's pretty cool for a lot of reasons. One, you know, family was so important to him, but his brothers had impressive resumes of their own. And that exhibit was a pretty cool way to tell the story. And we could probably go down a rabbit hole with each of his individual brothers, but the the one that struck me, and this was more from scavenging on your website than anything else the younger brother whose college he paid for ended up being his biggest critic uh, that's right through his presidency and i just think of just at that exhibit of that table alone my gosh there's hours and hours of education and stories to be told just spanning from that one exhibit well in in their high school yearbook in their high school yearbook, the school um, uh, voted his brother to be future president of the United States and him to be a future teacher. No way. Oh, my gosh. Well, when we, like we've already mentioned, our theme for the year is the making of a leader. We started with Ida and actually her influence on Ike because it is important to note that all of her children were successful. Yeah. That doesn't just happen. And... Her influence was really important to that, and so um, that table is a really is indicative of that. And yeah. um, it's you know we we what we make sure we highlight Ida and talk about her because all of those things come together, along with his military service, to make him who he became. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. And two of the other things in that exhibit that I think are really cool, and then we can move on to World War Two years. There is a ticker tape that starts Mm -hmm. that is interspersed throughout much but not all of the museum that really pulls everything together chronologically in his life and also 
not just his life, but all the signature world events mm -hmm. that impacted his leadership in those timelines. And then the last thing, maybe this is finally the good segue, uh, on the floor as visitors will walk through, uh, some, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's a little more direct, but changes in color, you know, motif, uh, subtly noted with a, a big break in the in the carpet on the floor that's true so we have um, the one that you're particularly talking about is d uh, not d-day excuse me pearl harbor day um, pearl, pearl harbor day is marked in the floor um very strongly it's a it's a marker in our country's history where we're changing um and so there's this big big stripe on the floor and then when you pass into the next room it gets a little darker um and a little bit more um uh, i'll say ominous even so going into his, uh, well, that marker is D-Day, but that really does take us into his service during World War II or the year or two prior and then the war years. Very cool exhibits there. Uh, I might offer a couple of wow moments for me and then let what you were all your wow pick. Uh, a couple of them. One, the, the weapons. There is mm. an entire wall of weapons from that time. And on top of that, just being... Pretty cool, uh, and frankly, a little haunting. Uh, you told me that it is the largest, I'm going to say it wrong, you tell me, the largest collection of? We have the largest uh, military weapons collection within the National Archives. Of any the, of, of the, the presidential the libraries. Presidential libraries in the archives. You have the largest collection of World War II weapons. Well, I think that's pretty cool. So It was pretty neat. And when we were building that exhibit to just sort of um, observe the, the transition of technology from the beginning of the war where we were still using World War One weaponry to the end of it where we had all of this technological advancement and, and experiential or experimental rather um, trials of, of weaponry. Yeah. The other, I mean, all of it is kind of a wow moment, but the other one that really made me stop and, and invest was, and again, I'm sure I'll call this the wrong thing too, but there is a round tabletop that displays a movie that it comes from a camera up above it and it is a timeline development of the events of world war ii all the countries how the front lines ebbed and flowed and and with descriptors of things that were happening during that time uh that was a total uh, uh draw you in and really can't walk away from that too and some of the data points were just overwhelming. You know, it concludes with a number of losses, mm -hmm. both by country and total, and, you know, conservative estimates, over 50 million people. It's just... It's, it's astounding. It's, it's astounding. staggering. Yeah. Sobering. Mm -hmm. Very sobering. It almost feels, even when it's over and it's no longer putting anything new on the screen, it's almost hard to walk away. It feels like it's... You're right. Such a heavy moment, it's inappropriate to just cavalierly turn around You're right. and walk off. That is one of my favorites. Um, as a former teacher and still an educator, I think that uh, my students and people in general often have a time, they, they struggle with the full impact of, of something that happens in history. So they might not know, first of all, the full timeline. You know, it's like, oh, it happened and that's it, but they don't recognize how how long something really took. But also the casualties, you know, the size, you know, how many countries were involved, those sorts of things. And that video does a good job of pulling all that together. So one of you, whichever one of you wants to, 
tell tell the listeners the anecdote you told me. So it's obvious walking around with you guys, not only that you're proud of the, the legacy and the infrastructure you have here, but that what really gins you up and geeks you out is when you can see young people or scholars have mm-hmm. their wow moment or that light bulb that comes on. And you all told me about there's a time where on the map uh, the Soviet Union goes from being, you know, completely red on one side of the conflict to completely blue, which, of course, is when the Germans invaded. But you had a student. Uh, yeah, that was that was my story. I was um, just in the in the room casually watching uh, museum people do that just to see if things are working, if we need to make any changes. So I was watching this family group around the table. And uh, as you mentioned, the Soviet Union begins the war uh, as part of the Axis um, powers. And so it's red in this map. Uh, And then immediately it turns blue when uh, Germany invades the Soviet Union. And this this young boy says, huh, I wonder what happened. Russia's, Russia's blue now. I wonder what happened. And to me, it was a moment of this is why museums do things. Um, he didn't learn it right that moment because it happened too fast for his eyes, but he, he walked away with, with some curiosity, and hopefully he learned it at the next space, or you know he went home and learned it. So, I, so we sparked his curiosity, and that's, that's why we do our jobs. Yeah, it's, it's easy to see and feel how, for you guys, that is maybe the coolest moment of all when something like that mm-hmm. happens. From, from an educator's perspective, that's, that's the best. That's because the, I like curiosity. I like when, when we can spark curiosity. Yeah. Uh, one other observation, and and my goodness, don't let uh, don't let me just list off my favorites here. You guys jump in with other things you want listeners to know about. Uh, but pretty cool. They had Ike's wife Mamie featured in that part. She's featured throughout, including one room that's really dedicated to her. But I thought it really captured who she was that during the war she served in the women's uh, military service and, you know, did not differentiate herself at all via being the wife of the commander in chief, you know, just rolled up her sleeves and did the same thing. Absolutely. She was part of the volunteer corps. She was very um, uh, conscientious of the role that she had to play. Uh, There was a story that one of the other officers' wives was, um, you know, complaining or or sad that her husband was overseas fighting this war. And Mamie apparently fussed at her and said, that is not what we do as wives of officers. All of these boys are over there getting shot at and we're going to stand up and we're going to be supportive and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to project this sorrow um, we're going to be um, dedicated civilians, and we're going to do our job, and we're going to keep our wits about us. And so she was she was very strong. She's a very strong woman, and she was very dedicated in her role as an officer's wife. She knew that his success was um, somewhat dependent on her behavior and her demeanor. And so she took that very, very seriously. Yeah, and from all accounts, a relatively private person when she had the chance to be, but when she needed to be, she would be out there mm-hmm. doing she was. She was a very private person, but she was um, just as dedicated as Ike was yeah. to, to, to their family um, goals and success and, 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 and end point. So uh, I'm saying, thinking in my head here, I said, you know, last couple of things I want to comment from the World War II portion of the exhibit, but actually... That was a total lie. That's only from the uh, from the first half 
of the exhibit. There's the entire second half that I'm now thinking of. Some way cool things in there. And my favorite, I still can't get my head around this, and the wow is not the uh, the exhibit itself, but the how it came about. You're pretty excited about that. I am. It's the coolest thing I've seen uh, in the whole thing. Again, not just what it is, but how it came to be here. So many listeners will know, or even if you don't think you know, if you saw the photo, you would know. you saw the photo, know, you would know. Uh, the night before, the morning of D-Day, just before the invasion, Eisenhower was out with the troops, and there is a famous photo of him speaking with a paratrooper. Um, at the time, it was not known what they were speaking about. Mm-hmm. And in here, you have that photograph enlarged, and you have the actual uniform that paratrooper was wearing in the photo. Uh, we now know from that paratrooper they were talking about fly fishing. But here's the part that's mind-blowing. Because, frankly, you've got a lot of things in here that are like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Yes. But the way it was procured, uh, yeah, you tell the story, Joy. This is just serendipity doesn't cover it. I don't know if I should tell. I I think Don tells it better than I do. (laughs) All right. I'll do it. Um, So the photograph, as we we mentioned, um, shows Eisenhower talking to uh, 101st Airborne. Um, it's an iconic photo. If you saw it, you would go, yes, I know that photo. Um, so one day in the 80s, I wasn't here yet, uh, this gentleman shows up at the museum, starts talking to the staff at the time, and the gentleman says, hey, that photo, that's me. Do you want the uniform? Uh, so he donated his uniform to the, to the library and talked to the curators of the time and discussed um, what was going on, and he's the one who told us that they were talking about fly fishing. They're talking about casting fly fishing. So this is the 1980s. Uh, not that that's antiquated, but travel wasn't quite as easy and frequent as it is now. And this guy came from Saginaw, Michigan, according mm-hmm. to the exhibit. Yep. Drove down here unannounced, uh, didn't call ahead of time, nothing. Uh, for all we know, the poor bastard could have showed up on a week they were closed for renovations. But in he Thank walks. Thank goodness he w- we were open. Yeah. <laughs> he walks in and just casually, mm-hmm. as part of his experience, is like, yeah, no, that was me. Uh, yeah, and so furthermore, I still have the uniform. Right. Do you want it? And do you want it? So we have the uniform placed in front of the, the photograph. Yeah. Well, it. If not for the backstory, I don't know if that would be in my top three exhibits in the museum. But because of the backstory, it is. Uh, you did love that. I did. That's just I still can't get over how that came about. And we did talk a little bit later. You all did about how um, it's just un unimaginable and unpredictable the sources of the artifacts and the things that you get here. And we got a new collection um, right before the pandemic we got a new collection of some photos Um, it was a it was actually a lovely collection because it was from a soldier or soldier's family um, and he had some photographs and then the letters back and forth between him and his mom so the so it wasn't just the photos the photos are great but then the letters referenced the photos so we had, you know, his words about the photos as well. Wow. And again, these were things that you didn't even know existed prior to them being sent to nope, you? Nope, they just reached out to us. That's mind-blowing. But also important. Like, it's important that he came here. and Because, you know, we see these pictures. We don't have references for them. And so we see this picture of, 
like talking to soldiers and, you know, we might assume, probably going to automatically assume they're having this serious conversation and then to find out, nope, they're talking about fly fishing. Yeah. And that says a lot about who he was as a leader, but um, it also gives us kind of an idea of how important it was to have a little normalcy while everything was going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Well, the last thing in the World War II section uh, that I thought was way cool, uh, the mulberries. There's like a, the mulberry I harbor. do, yeah, the Mulberry Harbor. So there's a whole video that goes along with it, but D-Day, which is commonly known, but less commonly known, is how did they set up supply lines for mm-hmm. all those folks. And uh, some listeners may know this, but they created this floating pier, basically. They called them mulberries and towed it across the channel. But in the museum, you guys have the actual model that Ike and his team used to pitch Winston Churchill on the idea and sell it to him. And it's not a replica. It's, it's not some Lego. It's the model. It's the model. Right. So where they were going to land um, on the Normandy coast, um, the deep water par- ports were in the hands of the Germans. Um, so they didn't have a deep water port to unload anything. So they built these mulberry harbors, uh, floated them across from England, set them up, and they used these to unload ships and supply the, sh- the troops. Um, but one thing that you missed in this space was my favorite piece. Um, so I'm going to bring it up now. And mm-hmm. that is the in case of failure notice, the mm-hmm. in case of failure letter. Um, so the in case of failure letter is this handwritten in pencil, fairly small piece of paper that Eisenhower wrote that said the troops did everything that they could to prepare for this. Um, and if there's any failure, it's my failure. It's mine alone. And uh, I, that was a terrible, terrible paraphrasing of it. But to me, it's so indicative of his character that 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 if if anything possibly was was misaligned and didn't happen the way we wanted it to, that's my fault. That's on me. And there's somewhere in the museum tour, I will get this wrong too, but I think it might have been in in the final video that uh, the last video you see as you go through the museum where he defines leadership and leadership is nothing more than making sure that you take the responsibility for all the failures and making sure that everybody else gets credit for all the successes. Everything that goes right is from them, and everything that goes wrong is from me. Yeah, Uh, which, by the way, will be a nice segue a little later on. We're going to turn to Joy and talk some about uh, the education efforts going on, which fits right into your theme. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, well, let's move. Otherwise, I'll I'll soak up another half hour talking about the (laughs) World War II section. Moving past that uh really kind of another transition in the museum so post-war and he did a lot of cool things that in and of themselves could be their own podcast president of columbia he ends up going over and running nato uh which is way cool Uh, and then of course he announces that he's going to run for president Mm -hmm. uh you guys have just right out of the gate there's a huge wall of cool paraphernalia from the campaign the i like ike badges and everything uh, tell us, tell listeners more about that. Sure. So prior to um, his candidacy, um, he was actually courted by both the Republican and the Democratic parties to run uh, under their banner. Um, eventually, he chose the Republican Party, and uh, he ran this amazing um, campaign with the "I Like Ike" uh, slogan, which was 
you know, something we still use and we still see today with the red, white, and blue buttons. Um, um, one of the things I like is that they used m multiple languages for the buttons. Um, and then they used all of these other things. Um, women were, this was the first time that women were really voting as a block. Uh, and so they had a lot of campaign uh, paraphernalia for women. They had these umbrellas that had I Like Ike. They had stockings that had I Like Ike on them. They had um, dresses that have Ike on them. And, and the women really turned out and, and voted for Ike for this, for this um, um, election. And it's really a moment of women's voting power coming to, it, to the front. Uh, and it's amazing, actually, listeners won't be able to see this, but you pointed and we all looked, the room we're recording and there's actually a mannequin with an Ike dress on. Yes. That had to have been pretty revolutionary in its time. Uh, yeah, we, we, we didn't necessarily um, campaign towards women mm -hmm. prior to that. Uh, but this, and, and Mamie was a big part of the campaign as well. Mamie, in fact, Ike said that Mamie was more important than he was. Um, and they, they, they traveled, uh, cross country, um, to do campaign, um, speeches and stump speeches and stuff. And he was, uh, by and large, he was welcomed, uh, to great cheers. Um, and the people, uh, recognized what he had done during World War II um, and therefore put great stock in what he could do as commander-in-chief as well. Well, moving into his actual presidency, a couple of things that struck me that are well documented. It is easy to forget, you know, you made the comment, Don, that most people when they think of the 50s think of this Laverne and Poodle Shirley. Skirts, yeah, yeah, just all fun times yep. and stress-free uh, but his presidency was just littered with both uh, crises that he had to manage mm -hmm. and seismic introductions of or introductions of more seismic changes that he led. Right. Uh, he was uh, the one that had to negotiate the armistice with Korea to end the Korean War, uh, the conflict. Uh, I mean, Lebanon, Suez, Berlin, Hungary, just all over the world. A couple of things, maybe on a more uh, optimistic or positive note, he did and or created, signed the first civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. Yes. He was the one that signed into law the legislation creating NASA. Yes. Uh, and I didn't know this until I saw it in your video Today. in here. The International um, Atomic Energy Agency. Right, which is IAEA. So he spoke at UN at UN. Um, and he said, we have this atomic power now. We have to control it as best we can. We have to use it for peaceful purposes. And we need an agency that can, can oversee all of that. So with his um, idea, frankly, uh, they put the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy um, Agency. Agency. Thank yeah. you. I was trying to say association. I knew that was wrong. <laughs> the acronym um, still works. Uh, uh, into place, and that agent that that agency is still um, in effect. As a matter of fact, uh, it's in Vienna, and uh, somewhat recently, Joy was able to get one of their historians uh, to speak at one of our educational programs. Oh wow! How cool. Mm -hmm. uh, still extremely active agency today. So. 
you mentioned on that topic, you know, how important it was to him to have them used for peaceful purposes. I will say one of the themes that I think by the end is just overwhelming, and I think it's intended to be, is that largely because of all he had seen as a soldier, peace was the paramount driver for everything he did. Everything. Yeah. Everything he did. So we have, um, um, he believed in a global peace. But there are things that you need to do to attain a global peace. And he lays those things out with his actions, with his international um, agenda. He says you can't be peaceful if you're starving. So he puts some food programs into place so we're feeding other nations. Um, he says that you can't be free if you don't understand it. So he starts the Voice of America and programs where where we as um, a free democracy are sharing our ideals with those behind the Iron Curtain. Um, he also says that you must have a strong standing military. You, you have to have peace through might as well. Um, so he, he had these very specific ways that we needed to attain global peace, but he absolutely believed in it. Yeah, and you can, you can sense that. You can sense how, I mean, it was more than critical. It was almost obsessive in a good way. We have, how committed a, we have someone on staff who says that, you know, um, we know that Ike played golf a lot, um, and this staff member believes that he was um, um, managing by example, by saying, we're okay, we're okay. Your president is on the golf course, we're okay. And so he was managing our stress or our anxiety as a nation um, by exuding this peaceful, calm nature. Yeah, I, uh, this has nothing to do with the museum, but I just finished reading uh, Meacham's big biography on Herbert Walker Bush. I didn't realize till then that one of Ike's primary golf partners was uh, Prescott Bush, Herbert Walker Bush's dad. I didn't know that either. Yeah, uh, he was a senator and yeah, one of his regular golf partners. Uh, but that is is interesting and and probably insightful that even that time spent golfing had a purpose. Well, he was working. He was also working on the golf course. But but the the concept is that he was showing us that we're okay. Yeah. Well, that that commitment and it is just so easy to tell that it stems from you know the horrors he saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it just wasn't optional to him. It was it was the mission the mission. That's right. So we, we talked about how we use Ike and Mamie's words a lot. Um, the last quote from Ike in the military section is, I hate war as only a soldier who lived it can. Yeah. And I fully believe that that sets him up for the rest of his, of his career. He's, he's said that we, we need peace, uh, you know, peace through might. And uh, the one of the final chapters of his presidency, of course, the farewell speech where he talks about the military-industrial complex. Word of warning, but one of the videos in there that I think is pretty impactful, too, it has a speech from him. I believe it's at the UN, I think, was the audience, where he talks about, uh, you know, every fighter plane costs, mm-hmm. what, a half million bushels of wheat and every destroyer uh you know represents the capital needed to build eight thousand homes for families without and the the sentence in that that strikes me is he said that um the atomic weapons that they had at that time 
numbered more than all of the shells and all of the bombs used in all of the World War II efforts from all of the weapons. Like his, the, he kept saying all because it was important. All of the shells, all of the bombs, and that statistic is staggering to me. Yeah, it is. It really is. Uh, and so many of Ike's messages whether it was the need to have you know an agency monitoring nuclear activity or uh, just all of it, uh, the military-industrial complex, as a tourist in in the library, uh, if you have any interest in history and current affairs, it just all feels as relevant or more relevant today as it did back then. That's that's the thing that struck me when I when I started working here was everything that he did in his um, um, administration. We still, in some way or another, are st- we're still dealing with, or we're still talking about, or we're still working on. Yeah. Uh, other cool things. There's a whole room dedicated to Mamie and and her contributions. Uh, I did another thing. I scavenged from your website that I thought was fascinating. I have a, a vague memory of her as, as a popular first lady, but I don't think I appreciated the depth of it. In Gallup's polls of most popular women in America, I think she was she either wanted or was in the top ten for nine consecutive years. Yes, that's you right. Know, long outstripped just her time as first lady. Uh, that's pretty impactful. I think she was – I think that was just because she was just such a genuine – lovely human who truly cared about people. Um, She would talk about how when people would come to the White House, she'd shake everybody's hand. At the end of the day, her hand was hurting. Um, She she wrote letters to everyone who wrote letters to her. Um, If people asked her to participate in a fundraiser, she would find a way to participate in a fundraiser. She really cared. And and that just, to me, that just came through everything she did. Well, what else? I want to, I probably already spent more time here on the the museum and the exhibit part of it than I intended to. Anything else we need to talk about there before we change to more of the education and outreach mission uh, that you think is important that we missed? Do you mean more on the campus? Because it's a big campus. Yeah, that's true. We've only really talked about the exhibits Mm -hmm. in the museum. So, yeah, I think I do. Let's talk about all of those pieces, too, because those will be instructional to to the education part. So the campus started with the boyhood home, which is here. Um, It's where it was. We didn't move it. It was a neighborhood. Um, Then after the war, um, uh, excuse me, when, uh, when Ike's mom died, the property was transferred to the Eisenhower Foundation, and it was open to the public for tours. Um, after the war, the Eisenhower Foundation recommended that they build a museum um, to honor Ike, and Ike said, not for me, but for all of the service members. So they began fundraising and building um, this building that we're in right now, actually, um, as, a, as a, a military museum. And then Ike became the president, so the mission of the museum kind of changed in midstream, and they added on to it, and it became this um, presidential military museum. Um, And as the president of the United States, at that time, the president's documents belonged to the president, and he could do with them as he chose. So Eisenhower reached back out to the Eisenhower Foundation and said, if you can build an appropriate repository, I will donate this to you, to this repository. 
Somewhere right in there, um, it was transferred to the National Archives and Records Administration. So now it's a federal site. Um, Eisenhower also decided that he wanted to be buried here. So he worked with the Eisenhower Foundation to build what is called the Place of Meditation. Um, Eisenhower and Mamie chose to be to have that be the name, that Place of Meditation. So Ike, Mamie, and their firstborn son are buried there, and it is the intention is for it to be a place for service members to go and reflect on um, on their service to the United States um, and um, uh, you know just just citizenship as as a whole. I when I was here. 15, gosh, it was probably at least 15 years ago, I walked by his boyhood home, which we didn't do today, uh, but it is staggering just how small it is. It's very small. Very small. It's seven boys. Like, yeah. it's very small and a big family. Yeah. <laughs> and all boys. Woof. All boys. Yeah. I can only imagine. His poor mom. His, she was a strong one. I don't know. I don't know if we need to be sorry for her. I think she, no, she was pretty tough. I think she kept all of them in line. Maybe it was poor boys. Maybe not, it was poor uh, boys. Not poor mom. <laughs> That's funny. Well, with all of that, uh, in terms of what is here physically and the infrastructure and the exhibits, uh, let's talk. Enjoy this. Really gets into your wheelhouse more. The the museum, and you can sense this when you're here too, and you can really sense it when you talk to the two of you. Uh, you know, the exhibits are history, but the spirit is, is that of an educator, everything here. And it's so much has been done to turn this into not just a place to study the past, but to bring it forward with lessons that are relevant today and to, to use it as a resource to continue to teach. Uh, talk to me about all of the things you have going on here. You've got, I know, some ongoing programs with different guests that come as part of those programs. You have a different theme that will hold for a period of time that you focus on uh, his impact. And at some point, if you would, also talk about it's pretty darn cool how many uh, you know researchers of note and how diverse around the, the, the world how many people come here and use this as a research spot, you know, your library and your materials? Um, okay. <laughs> that, that's a lot. Take take your time. Fire away. No, that's okay. Um, so, I, you know, one of my big thing is, things is that when, you, when you're talking about history, you need to know the what and the why does it matter to you. And, and I, I want it to be personal. Um, and so I think we do a good job of that here in, is in bringing the past to the present so that people can understand, like, why does this matter to me on a personal level? As someone who did not live in the 1950s, you know, it still matters to me. There, are, as we've said, there are topics, things, programs that went on then that right now we're still either being impacted by or at least we're still discussing because maybe there was never a conclusion or maybe the conclusion that worked in the 1950s doesn't work anymore. Um, so we do, so part of my job is to have these discussions in, in a lot of different ways. And um, depending on what we're talking about, it, I, you know, we bring in some scholars like Don has mentioned uh, the IAEA, 
Did I get mm-hmm. that right? Yes. yes, you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> they came and, 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 or they did a virtual program with us. Love virtual because it opened us up to so many more um, opportunities. Um, but we've had someone from the Churchill Archives come and talk about that relationship. But even going along with our theme to make, or make making of a leader, you know, we've had some military people come in and just really discuss, you know, a lot of factors, a lot of different things that are relevant to individual people, relevant to today and to individual people. Um, so we have our public programs. We also have our, our foundation does our K-12 programming. Um, this is their classroom that we're sitting in. Um, but they are really good about making what we have here digestible, mm-hmm. easily digestible for, for that K-12 age group. Can I interrupt here just long enough to ask you, one of the things I saw on the website, and I didn't dive very deep, civics for all of us. Or yes. all is it is it us or U.S.? I mean, it's us. capitalized for U.S., but mm-hmm. I presume it's us. Okay. It, it's kind of it's a play both. on both. Right. Yes. So that is an initiative with uh, – with the National Archives and, you know, just this idea that we want citizens to be civically engaged. Um, It is important that we as citizens are civically engaged, but we have to teach civic engagement, right? It doesn't just happen. And so that is what re-rule is. It's really about, there's K through, it goes K through 12, different programs, but it's really about introducing what civics means and being civically minded and civically active um, because we want to create quality citizens, right? So uh, it's a program, it's a free program. If you want it, uh, it's mostly teachers, but we do other groups, um, homeschools, uh, boys and Girl Scouts or scouting programs, I should say. You can request a program, and one of us, one of the education specialists across the National Archives will come and do this program for you. Cool, and for free. And for free. Yeah. And so, um, but it's just a great way to introduce civics to young people, and hopefully 10, 15, 20 years from now, we'll have this new generation of very civically minded and involved Young people. Yeah. And I see, again, mostly just scavenged from your website, but it looks like you all have a lot of interesting and fairly noteworthy speakers that come by just periodically as part of your your At Ease program. And there was another one, the name escapes me, but they're ongoing. uh, I don't know if you call it part of your curriculum or your culture here, but you bring a lot of pretty impactful folks. So we have our Lunch and Learn and we have our Evenings at Ease, and those are our regular programs. And um, I work hard to try to make sure that we have pretty good speakers, Um, not just because I want it to be interesting, but I like to challenge, not challenge people's thoughts, but I want people to challenge what they think they know. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, I try to make sure we're bringing in different types of speakers. Uh, So I appreciate that you say we have, you know, a lot of different um, speakers, quality speakers, mm-hmm. and impactful and well-known speakers. Um, it's it's a little easier to do that when you have Eisenhower Presidential Library behind your name. I bet it is. But well, um, one thing I would like to say is that most of these programs, almost all of the, our programs, are free. 
Um, and this is through the, the support of the Eisenhower Foundation. So it's really, it's something that we're very pleased to be able to offer all of these free educational programming. Yeah, it's pretty cool. As I was looking back through the list of some of the speakers that have been here, I just thought to myself, oh, man, I would, like I need to pay more attention to who's here because I might have literally, I live uh, in Lawrence, which is, you know, not quite two hours away, but a couple of those I'm like, you know what? I might have actually gotten in the car and drove over to see that. That well, would we're, be pretty we're cool. we're culminating this year. I'm taking your thunder, but we're culminating <laughs> this year with uh, Susan Eisenhower. Wow. So Susan Eisenhower wrote a book, How Ike Led, and we're talking about leadership and all of the things that added up to How Ike Led. So she's our culminating uh, conversation. Anything else, uh, Joy, on the education front that you want to showcase that you guys are doing that we haven't covered yet? Well, we have some exciting things that we're trying to launch. I don't know if, if it's too, okay to talk about Too soon them. to tell, or is it okay? <laughs> it's, pr- it's funny. everybody You can't see it, but everybody's looking around the room at each other saying, nah, I mean, I guess we can say we're working on it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm super excited about and hopefully will launch sometime soon is a new podcast. Um and really wanting to dig into our museum collection and our archives and talk about the things that that aren't on the walls, um, but really important. And we have these documents and, you know, the National Archives wants us to make access happen. This is a great way to do that. So I'm very excited about that. Um, Oh, and our symposium, that happens annually. We have a World War II Emerging Scholars Symposium. And it's been really enjoyable because we get all this new scholarship and hearing about things that we haven't haven't previously really been explored. Um, so I've learned a lot in, yeah. in the two years that we've done it. So uh, that's becoming one of my favorite programs. Emerging leaders. So who's your target audience there if it's emerging leaders? So, you know, we purposely leave emerging undefined. Mm-hmm. That way we have this really wide net. Um, but as far as target audience, honestly, my target audience is always the people who wouldn't ordinarily take an interest in maybe Dwight D. Eisenhower or maybe or that particular II, topic, right? Or that particular topic, wanting to come in and say, "Oh, that seems interesting," and coming in and learning something. Yeah. Well, this is all just an awesome story and it is so fun to get to come out and spend the afternoon with you folks and see it and and feel it you know as you walk through uh we have been going at this for almost an hour i could probably go another hour but what uh i want to give you guys one last call anything that we haven't talked about today that you think is integral to what you do here that listeners need to know about yes I thought there might be. (laughs) So we have um, in our archives, we have 26 million pieces of paper, um, well over 300,000 photographs. I have no idea how many feet of uh, audio tape or videotape or film footage. Um, And all of this is available to researchers. 
And it's to me, it's a very American thing that you have access. You have direct access to your governmental documents. Um, uh, so we have not only Eisenhower's um, uh, presidential administration records, but also military records. So we have researchers who come from across the globe who come here to Abilene to do research within the archives. So what would happen is you, anyone, um, um, starts talking to one of our archivists to decide, to discuss what is it that you want to look at, um, um, narrow down your focus because you can't look at 26 million pieces of paper. Trust me. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> um, so the archivists help decide what it is you need to look at. You make an appointment to come in. Your The documents are available for you. You sit at a desk, you go through the documents, and it is a one-on-one -on -one uh, relationship between the scholar and the and the records and that's an amazing and astounding thing to me um, so we have uh, in a good year uh, we have 600 800 researchers per year um, some of those researchers are uh, the 10th grade class uh, at Abilene High uh, comes and spends several days I'm not sure how many off the top of my head um, we have classes from the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth who come and spend a couple of days here. Uh, and then we also have uh, scholars from across the globe. It's, 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 a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to see these people in there uh, working and learning and, and, and doing whatever it is they're doing. Somebody might be writing a book. Somebody might be creating a film. Yeah, and one of the things that's oh, I'm sorry, Joy, go ahead. I was going to say, say kudos to our archive staff because they 100%. are the ones who make this happen. Yes, but also they make my job a lot easier because, as people know, I I go I can go off on whims, <laughs> you know. I I just I have this great idea for a program, and that's it. That's what I do. <laughs> I, I call the archivist magicians. Right, and then I can go to our, our, our archivist and say, hey, I have this great idea, but do we have documents to back this up? Mm -hmm. And he'll go, let's do some research. So kudos to them because they make a lot of this happen. Yeah. They make most of it happen. That's awesome. And one of the things that you know I fixated so much earlier on that uniform from the guy in the pre-D-Day photo and how it got here and then you shared with me oh yeah just before the pandemic we got all these um you know letters with descriptions of the photos and everything and the global takeaway from that is even though it's been you know 70 years 60 to 70 years since his presidency and longer than that since his uh, world war ii service and everything else it is not a static set of data. I mean, yes, that static data remains here and will always be available, but the collection never stops growing. And I think to most of us, at least it is to me, it's staggering how much that is still happening. You know, for parts early in his life, you know, we're going on a hundred years ago now. Uh, it's just mind blowing. Well, that's that's a really good point. Like the the things that you find. Um, uh, you know, perhaps in the family barn or the attic, what what have you, um, when those things come to light, they could change our knowledge of any situation. Uh, another thing is that when when we uh, are able to uh, declassify 
documents. That's throughout the throughout the presidential library system, not just Eisenhower. But as we declassify documents, that also adds information um, to the to the scholarship available. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, I think we will draw to a close here, but I cannot thank you guys enough for the time you've made to, to spend with us on the podcast as well as with me this afternoon ahead of time walking through things and can't thank you enough for the work that you do here. Uh, it's very cool. And I hope, very cool. I hope because of this podcast, you will find some other uh, in, uh, intrigued souls coming through the doors here at the at the Eisenhower Presidential Museum and Library. Well, we we welcome everybody. Um, anybody can check our website eisenhowerlibrary.gov for times, ticket information, location information, programs, uh, programs. programs. Thank you, Joy. Yeah, there you go, Thank you, Joy. <laughs> um, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at uh, at Ike Library. Very cool. And I will uh, tell listeners again what uh, how my tour today started. I was asked. Have you been here before? And you know, I and you said I, yes. I proudly said, "Oh yes, I have." It's about fifteen years ago. To which Don looked at me somewhat, almost condescendingly, and said, <laughs> "Well, then you haven't been here." <laughs> and and it's true. Uh, welcome back, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, or welcome again for the first time. Yep, that's right. Yeah, uh, because it was exactly right. I had been fifteen y- years ago. Uh, but it's not the same. It's, it's totally same. different. So come on back if you haven't been here. That's my point exactly. Even if you are a proud Kansan and you have been here, uh, if it's been a minute, come back. It's pretty come cool. Uh, and on a mo- point of personal privilege, I want to mention a couple people here and then we'll wrap up. Uh, your teammate, Samantha Kenner, who is in the t- room here with us but not on the podcast, uh, you guys probably know this, but holy Toledo. I reached out to her first about this podcast to over two years ago and of course that was right when COVID had landed on our doorstep and it was a story we were excited to tell uh, and I thought I could sense that it was something you guys were excited to do too but COVID had just wrecked the whole thing and I just kept asking Samantha over and over again I'm like would I be wearing out my welcome if I make a note on my calendar and call you in two months and she said nope and so I would call again in two months Nothing had changed, uh, but God bless her, and to her credit, she kept answering the phone every two months, and the tenacity paid off and got us here today, so hugely appreciate that. And to go one degree farther out, um, I would like to thank my friend State Representative John Barker, proud representative of Abilene and very proud of what you all do here uh, when we are always looking for podcast ideas. And the first call to Samantha came because it was probably two and a half years ago. I was, uh, John and I were enjoying one of our favorite bad habits. We were having a cigar together and I mentioned the podcast and he emphatically suggested that this would be a good place. And he was the one that gave me Samantha's contact information. So uh, I hugely appreciate the role both of those people played. And thanks again, Don and Joy, for being such great guests and great hosts here today. Uh, so grateful for the time you spent. Thank you for being Thank here. Thank you for you having bet. us. Listeners, thanks for joining us. We will catch you on the next episode of the BHL Podcast. Bye.